So uh, with that, we're, we're changing the order a little bit this morning. We're changing the order of our, of our gathering, uh, and I think you're going to see why here in a few moments. Uh, this is really the beginning of a season of Thanksgiving. Uh, we are moving just a few weeks ahead till the holiday of Thanksgiving, and I, I think it's probably one of the most Christian holidays there is because Thanksgiving and gratefulness is, is so much a part of the Christian life, or at least should be. And so what I wanted to do is begin our service with a sermon on uh, gratefulness and gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord as a call to worship, where the application of the sermon comes afterwards as we sing as the church of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and begin to clear your throat. Uh, if you don't have a warm liquid with you, maybe, you know, drink you some water. Because I'm going to encourage you to sing and sing with great vigor this morning. And I'm going to try to ground that in the teaching of God's word because I believe that it is important for us to see the sermon title is Come, Let Us Worship and Bow Down, based on Psalm 95. And if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn there, Psalm 95, as we read the psalm in uh, its total context. Psalm 95. Please stand with me out of respect for the reading of the Word of God. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship And bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if only you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts have gone astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall not enter my rest. And Lord, bless the reading and the study of his word this morning. You may be seated as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would speak to us and stir our hearts. Lord, let your word Work, Lord, as your spirit moves, and may we respond accordingly. We ask this in Jesus' matchless name, that in the name that is above every name, amen. Psalm 95 is what we would call an enthronement psalm. Uh, With an enthronement psalm, the focus is on the entrance of the Lord God into his sanctuary, wherein he ascends to his throne in his role as the king, the indisputable supreme ruler of the entire world. With the enthronement psalm, the ancient people of Israel, Israel, they remembered God's saving work on their behalf, 
In particular, or specifically with Psalm 95, many scholars believe that this psalm was sung by the people during what we would call the Festival of Shelters, which is also known as the Feast of Booths. This Festival of Shelters was to take place after the produce of the orchards and the vineyards had been brought in and the wine had been pressed. This is according to Deuteronomy 16.13. This was a feast that was known to be the most joyous celebration. It was characterized by singing and, hey, you cradle Baptist, dancing. I know it. I know it. I know it. Lock the doors. Singing and dancing. Deuteronomy and Leviticus say that this feast lasted seven days, but Leviticus, uh, uh, Leviticus 23, uh, 42 through 43, this feast was tied to Israel's redemption. And on the solemn day of assembly, there would be no labor. They actually added a day of worship. This was a time where they would rebuild, reconstruct booths or shelters, and they would live in them during this festival, which it would remind them of their sojourning in the wilderness when they were headed to the promised land. As a result, it was a time of joyful celebration for the new produce and a time of remembering how God had guided and cared for his people. They looked back and they remembered what it was like to not have a homeland, anticipating the day when they would enter into the promise of God. And they drank and they ate and they sang and they danced and they made a joyful, loud noise. In the case of Psalm 95, the Lord's miraculous provision of saving mercy is remembered by his people, while God himself warns the people, do not grow cold and hard-hearted in the face of the continued mercy of God. So what are the two things that I want us to see in this psalm as we break it down just for a few moments, as we're preparing our hearts to respond in joyful worship to the Lord. Here's the first point that you find in this passage. We should worship God with joy-filled thanksgiving. Worship God with joy-filled thanksgiving. You notice this in verses 1 through 7. When we come to verses 1 through 7, we are immediately confronted with the command that is often translated, come. But in reality, uh, a, a more proper translation would probably be something to the effect of, Move it. Let's get going. Let's get going. Come on. Let's worship the Lord together. Sing before him with joy. What are you waiting on? It's the time, the time to worship. One Old Testament scholar by the name of Beth Tanner notes this about these commands to call aloud and shout. She says the two verbs in verse 1 are in the intensified form with one meaning to call loudly and the other often being used to describe a war cry or a cry of alarm. Now imagine that for a second. This type of song, Psalm 95, requires a war cry or a cry of alarm. A, A song requires great effort, so much power as a cry of alarm or war. 
Just, I, 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 want, I want to ask you this because I had to ask myself this. When was the last time that I sang unto the Lord with the effort that I would have lifted had I been in war and I saw my enemy coming and I knew there was no retreating? When was the last time I was hoarse after leaving the presence of the people of God because I had so lifted song? This type of of singing would have been deafening with a congregation of the size of Israel. It would have been loud and it would have been rowdy and it would have been threatening and frightening to someone that would have been listening. This is praise using all of the force and power that the human body has. This is the type of singing and shouting and worship that causes us to lose our voices. We are tired after this type of worship. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, why would I worship God like that? Why, preacher, should I expend the type of energy that I expend hollering at the TV when my favorite football team is on to worship the Lord? You want me to be as excited about this as I am college football? You want me to be excited about this as I am about politics? I mean, what has he done for me lately? I'm so glad you, you asked. Because if verses 1 and 2, if verses 1 and 2 tell us what we are supposed to do, verses 3 through 7 say, maybe this is why he deserves the worship that no other being, no other thing, no other reality in all of heaven and earth deserves this type of effort. Verses 3 through 7 describe God as the great king over all. The great king over all. Not just Houston, not just Texas, not just America, not just planet Earth. The great God over all. Fill in the category. He's the great God over all. Over all things. He rules over all, giving us absolute protection, sure salvation, and support even in the midst of desert moments in the wanderings of our lives. Now, here's what you're going to see in a moment is this language that's going to be used regarding the salvation of the Lord. It's interesting. Look with me at verse 1 for a second. It says, shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And I believe that the tendency within our mind is to think about a rock, rightly so, as a good foundation for our salvation. Yet I think that contextually, if you interpret verse 1 in light of what's said later on in the psalm, you actually get the idea that the rock of salvation imagery is more tied to the way that God provided water from the rock in the wilderness than it is actually this kind of idea of, oh, it's just, it's the foundation of my salvation. The, and, and really, I think that's what you're going to see whenever Paul brings it up again in 1 Corinthians 10 in a few moments, is that this idea that God provides salvation to us even in the midst of the desert wanderings of our life. Like how absurdly awesome is it to think that God led his people out into the desert as sojourners with, with probably no major reserves of water, and, and the people of Israel are getting thirsty. You ever been thirsty? Ever been thirsty in the desert? And as you begin to walk and wonder, you're like, he brought us out here to die. 
And what does he begin to do? Bread starts showing up in the mornings. And birds start coming close enough to be grabbed to provide meat. And then rocks, which are not typically known for this, become water fountains. Unlikely, unanticipated, glorious salvation brought to us in the midst of our sojourning, wandering in the desert. He is the great God over all. He's the type of God that brings water out of rocks. Bread from heaven. We then can see that we are not only to worship God as king over all, but as the creator and sustainer over all. He notes this. He's the great God in the depths, the earth, his hands. He holds in his hands the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. We are told that he is our maker, our creator, our sustainer, our shepherd. He determines our life, providing continual direction, guidance, and care. We do not simply acknowledge these truths about God, but we submit ourselves to God as well. We worship, which is we acknowledge. We ascribe to him the glory due his name, and then we kneel in submission to him. We know and act accordingly. This is what we are called to do, to worship God with joy-filled thanksgiving because of what he has done for us. What has God done for you? How has God in his kindness brought deliverance and salvation to you in that desert wandering? How has he called you his child and sustained you as the creator and Lord over all, providing continual direction, guidance, and care? Is not scripture true that he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care? Is he not a good shepherd? He is a good shepherd. He is good, he is kind, he is near to us. Now, as we think about this, we have the, the, the glorious privilege of understanding what God has done, not only in terms of what was historically accounted about God in the Old Testament, but we know in light of what Christ has done, what hope that we have. We recall not only what he's done in the past as great king and sustainer, we recognize that these realities point us to Christ, which is what we will consider more fully in these next verses. But before we consider that in light of how Paul uses this passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 10, I would leave you with the second point of this passage. Not only should we worship God with joy-filled thanksgiving, but secondly, we must beware of going blind to the goodness of God. Beware of going blind to the goodness of God. This is found in verses 8 through 11. The people of Israel were tempted to miss the goodness of God, even though they had witnessed it many times in their lives. The references to Meribah and Massah were references to times of quarreling and testing among the Israelites as they were journeying toward the promised land. It was during this time, as I've already mentioned, that God provides manna, for bread and birds for meat and water from a rock. Yet even though God had so richly provided and blessed his people, what did they do? They still grumbled, blind to the goodness of God. Isn't it staggering to think about what's happened 
for the people that are singing Psalm 95? They've been delivered from Egypt through these miraculous interventions and plagues by God. And, and not, not a few weeks later, while Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, they think God has all but abandoned them, and they craft their own image of God out of their own gold and say, this must be the God that delivered us. They, they are abandoning this God who has provided bread from heaven, meat from birds, and water out of rock. And at each point, he's there, and they have very short memories. And the reality is, it would be easy to judge them if it wasn't also so true in us to forget what God has done. To be so blind to his mercy toward us. I appreciate so much what Beth Tanner had to write again here. She said, these words here are a warning not to repeat the mistakes of old and not to doubt the power of the Lord as the ancestors did. One key phrase here is this. They tried me even though they had seen my deeds. This generation had been a witness to the power of the creator God and the leading of the shepherd king that provided sustenance in the wilderness and their response was complaint and doubt. And the psalm ends here. The psalm ends here with this warning that says they never entered my rest with the reminder, today, if only you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because there's this historical precedent that says we can grow very familiar with exceedingly holy things and begin to shrug at the everyday kindness and grace and mercy of God. Some of you did this this morning. Not all of us did though. Some of you woke up this morning and you recognize today is a gift. Today is a gift that I did not earn, that I do not deserve. And God, I am thankful for it. And some of us woke up grumbling that we had a bad night of sleep, failing to recognize, well, at least we woke up. We fail to recognize that daily mercy that meets us, that new morning mercy. Like these Israelites, we too are tempted to miss the goodness of God. We are tempted to grumble and complain in the face of his saving mercy and grace and think, what has he done for me lately? Well, Casey, let me tell you what he did when he was 17. He saved you from your idolatrous, self-made religion that had you running headlong in the direction of being a Pharisee, that though you knew a lot about God, you didn't know God, and God knocked you off of your religious high horse like he did the Apostle Paul, and he saved you not because of anything that you did, but because of his mercy. And Casey, the problem is, is that, that you don't stand in wonder every day of your life that he has been gracious to you. What's your story of the mercy of God? Are, are you 
shrugging at his miraculous kindness toward us as if we deserved it? Are we like that ungrateful kid at Christmas? That's not exactly what I wanted, but I'll take it. I guess. Or do we recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from above and that every situation and circumstance that we are living through in the moment is working together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose? It's interesting, the Apostle Paul draws upon the miraculous provision of salvation through Christ in connection with the provision that God has given the Israelites in the desert. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul writes this, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they passed I all passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. As we read Psalm 95, we are reminded that we must not grow cold and hard-hearted to the mercy and the grace of God toward us. The work of God in our midst through Jesus Christ calls and it ought to compel us to worship him. We ought not harden our hearts in blindness to his goodness. We ought to hear his voice this morning through his word to us and worship and bow down before our God. We must not miss the glory of the goodness of God toward us in Christ Jesus. We must remember the redemptive work of God toward us in Christ Jesus, where he, seeing us in our enslavement to sin, he came and set us free as the firstborn over all creation who laid his life down in our place. We must not be like those who see but never see, hear but never hear. Today is the day. Not tomorrow, but today. And my prayer is that God would soften our hearts this morning, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear the goodness of God's grace toward us in Christ Jesus, and that we would worship accordingly as we begin this season of thanksgiving, that we would come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the God of our Creator, our Maker, and let a war cry of praise fill this place because of what he has done. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to respond in song? As you reflect on the message this week, feel free to reach out to our staff by emailing care at copperfieldchurch.com. We would love to hear from you and pray for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast, Equip for Good. Thanks for listening.